and soul. And this is part one of two, considering what our bodies are and how our bodies are involved in worship. And uh, so this, this is one of the challenges of a, worship, a class on corporate worship, and that is that we're talking about a little bit of just about everything ever uh, in systematic theology. And so we've talked about the gospel, the Trinity, we've talked about children and salvation, and now we're talking about the body. And believe it or not, this is a really uh, complex and widely debated, widely studied topic. And so it's another one of them where we could really have a whole Bible class uh, series on this issue, on a theological anthropology. So I'm going to do my best to be uh, narrow in my focus. And so I, I will try not to wander. But if you have questions that I don't address, ask them. Uh, because maybe they're more relevant than I thought when I determined not to in include them in this lesson. But I want to begin by directing your attention to the section on the human constitution. And when I say constitution, I'm not talking about like a document. You know, I'm talking about the makeup of us as a human creature, or as the philosophers call us, the, the human animal, right? So what does it mean for us to be a creature? What is a person? Well, Christians have generally understood the human person as having a material part made up of matter. So there's your connection, matter, material, physical part, and an immaterial part, something that doesn't take on matter or physicality. Uh, but even within this distinction, there are several views that are really popular in Christianity. The first one is a view called trichotomy. Okay, so the trichotomous view is one that I'm going to suggest is not helpful, but it's really popular, actually, more popular than I realized um, until uh, a few years ago. I was doing some teaching at Eden, and there, there was a member who was like, you are way off in rejecting trichotomy, and it forced me to think about it a little bit more and read about it more, but I've so concluded that this view is not all that helpful, but I want to mention it here just because I think it's popular, and, and I want to point out one or two reasons why it's maybe uh, incorrect. So those who view humans as a trichotomy, that is, we're made up of three things, that's where the tri comes in, um, they essentially understand the human person to include a physical, a psychological, and a spiritual element. And they'll reference texts like Deuteronomy 6.5 to support this view, like love the Lord your God with all your heart, that's the spiritual, with all your soul, that's the psychological, and with all your strength, that's the, the physical part. And then probably the strongest biblical text that's leveraged here is 1 Thessalonians 5.23, where Paul, as part of a benediction, says, And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we hear just these two texts, then it sort of seems like this makes a lot of sense. Uh, humans are made up of three parts, two immaterial parts and one material part. However, there are several problems with this view. The first one is just that the word for spirit and soul are used interchangeably throughout the Bible, and they don't appear to reflect separate things. Um, so very often you'll, you'll hear a parallelism where the author talks about the spirit and then the soul, and they're really referencing the one and same thing. Now, the second issue is that texts that are used to support this view, and especially the division 
of soul and spirit as separate things are really just proof texts where the biblical authors aren't addressing the makeup of the human person. And the, the one that I was pointed to was Hebrews 4.12 that talks about the word of God being quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. I think that's the King James version that I memorized. But it talks about the division of the soul and spirit there. And that, that text just read in with a view to anthropology would seem to indicate that there's a division between spirit and soul as if they're separate things. But what isn't considered is that the, the author of Hebrews is using hyperbole to make a point. God's word does what nothing else can do, what is impossible to do. Uh, and if we continue reading that verse, it says that it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Well, that, those are harder to separate. In, in, in fact, those who would separate soul and spirit probably don't separate thoughts and intentions as separate things. So we need to just recognize that most of these texts are proof texts where the author is not addressing the makeup of the human person and instead is just using language common to describe the whole of a person. And then third, and maybe the, the most convincing, is that th the biblical authors just use a plethora of terms to, revert to refer to various aspects of the human person. And we shouldn't understand humans to be made up of all of those different things. So terms like flesh, body, soul, spirit, mind, heart, life, there are two terms for life, conscience, understanding, two terms for that, bowels, skin, a handful of other terms. We don't say that just because there's a term for it, we, we need to understand there's another part of the human makeup there. And so eventually, you know, the appeals to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength or something like that. Well, there are other texts that add other words to describe the, the point, which is love God with all that you are. And the point is not to construct a kind of ma biblical makeup of who we are as humans. Does this all make sense? Okay, so, so I'm one, one of the negative things if trichotomy is the prevailing lens through which you look at humanity, you start to look at people purely in terms of a physical part, a psychological part, and a spiritual part. And um, when you think about the care of a human, you go to the doctor for the physical part, you go to the psychiatrist for the psychological part, and you go to church for the spiritual part. And, and that's not right. Um, there, there shouldn't be a distinction that says there's part of me that doesn't belong to God. O only the spiritual part belongs to God and, and the rest is up to me. And this is an issue that is still there with dichotomy. The, this next view we'll look at where sometimes there's a division between the material and immaterial, but we shouldn't hold on to this trichotomist view is, is my main point. Any, any questions on that? You're not a heretic if you hold to this view. It just doesn't make sense, in, to me at least, in, in light of all, of all of the evidence. The next view, which is more sustainable, is a view called dichotomy, which says humans are just made up of two parts, a material physical part and an immaterial part as well. And uh, this, this view is more sustainable, and I think it's correct overall. Um, it can be misunderstood, and it can be leveraged in a wrong direction. But overall, we need to understand ourselves as having a physical and a non-physical part. 
Still, there are unexplained questions that, that we have here. And just about every religion and philosophy has tried to figure out what do we do with the material and immaterial part of a person. And usually, there's a devaluing of the physical part of the person and an elevation of the spiritual, immaterial part of the person with, with w- one of two results. On the one hand, because of the body doesn't really matter that much and the soul is good, we need, to, we need to get our immaterial part as disconnected from the body as possible through ascetic practices like, you know, restraining from you, you, whatever, like pleasure or food. And, and maybe we even beat ourselves and harm, hurt ourselves so that way we can experience this separation from the body. Emotions are bad. These sorts of things go on when we start saying that the body's lesser. Well, on the other side of that, if the body doesn't really matter, then you just do whatever you want with your body. It doesn't, it doesn't matter at all. And this is what some of the people in the church in Corinth were doing. They were saying, hey, the body was made for food and sex and everything else, so we'll just do whatever we want, and it doesn't matter at all because God's going to destroy the body. Well, Paul's theology is that the body actually really does matter. And I point this out because I think even in uh, popular Christianity, there's this soft view that the body doesn't really matter. It's only our immaterial part that matters. And so that's what we're going to give attention to. And, and that's what God gives attention to. And so we shouldn't really care about the physical aspect of our being. So in, in college, I used to work overnight shifts and I would just listen to sermons all the time or read or whatever else. And I was listening to this guy uh, preach a sermon on the importance of the word of God. And he had this major section on the sermon that was like, you better not be eating breakfast if you haven't read the Bible yet, because you're not a, you're not a body with a soul. You're a soul with a body clearly prioritizing the soul over the body. And at that time, I had started dating my wife, who's a type 1 diabetic. And I'm thinking, man, if she doesn't eat breakfast, she's, she can't read the Bible either, you know? <laughs> so that breaks down really fast as soon as you try to apply it. But I, th- I think that's indicative of a, a larger impulse that most Christians have to say the body is not that important. It's really the soul that's important. And and therefore, when I think about Christianity and worship and everything else, I'm thinking in terms of my immaterial part, not my material physical part in, in the involvement of the body in worship. But the greatest Christian hope that Paul gives us is the resurrection of the body. Uh, the, the Lord affirms the goodness of the body in the incarnation of Jesus. And it's only through our bodily senses that we experience God. Have you thought about that? There, there's no way to experience God in his gifts in this life or in the age to come outside of a bodily existence. Now, there is this one weird stage that we call the intermediate state upon death where our body and soul are separated. But, but what's the one thing that can separate body and soul, your material and immaterial part? Well, it's death. And death is defeated and it's going to be finally defeated. So that can never happen again. And so we need to look at this division between body and, and soul or body and spirit as something that is death-like. It's sort of uh, serpent-like, it's Voldemort-like, it's white witch-like. It's awful to try to say, I'm going to try to exist as a Christian outside of my body. Uh, that's bad. So even though this dichotomy view is right, the, there's a way to 
hold it, that's incorrect. And that's to prioritize one over the other. Instead, we should see ourselves as a holistic being, body and soul, um, separated only by death and then only temporarily. And it's, it's not a good thing for that to happen. Tim. Sure. So, so the question is, well, what about that one verse that says, you know, bodily exercise profits a little bit, but, you know, pursuit of the Lord is so much more or something like that. Well, the, the point I'm trying to make is, and I think that that author is trying to make, is that you living for your body, like, that, that's not good, right? To, to say my body is everything, that's, it, that's bad. My point is our bodies are part of our godliness. And, and the author there, Paul, I think, is not trying to separate godliness from the body. He's trying to say, you're using your body in a particular way, and, and that's good, but, but use your body holistically for the, for the glory of God and in, in to grow in him. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so these can... Well, this, that's, that's a good question. So the question is, if we're told to love God with our heart, strength, soul, mind, yeah. Um, but we have sin in our hearts, you know, is there only part of us that we can truly love God all the way with or something like that? Or should we lean into loving God with our soul instead of our heart? My, my point is that these are just synonyms sort of referring to the same things. And, and the reality is that there's sin in all of it. Like holistically, we're, we're broken and sinful. And so sometimes God gives commands to show us we need God to fulfill those commands. Like we can't do that on our own. We, we have Jesus who came as a perfect person to do that. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about that actually a little bit in Ephesians this morning when we talk about being dead in sin. Um, but that's a good question. Um, I, I want to say then that the, the push I'm trying to make us have is to view ourselves holistically as material and immaterial and there's an upshot to this, and that is that the way that our world and culture looks at people is that they're primarily either tools for utilitarian purposes or objects for pleasure. When you think about the way that our culture regards humans, they're either machines to accomplish tasks or they're objects to perform or receive pleasure. And that's a really bad way of looking at people. We need to look at people primarily as agents for worship. And in our worship, we, we experience pleasure and we complete tasks, but it's totally redefined because our whole selves are being viewed as the image bearers of God centered on him, such that when we go to work and we're, we're the cog in the machine, you know, stamping whatever it is as it goes down the assembly line, well, we do that for the glory of God. When we eat a beautiful meal, it's because God gives it to us. And so body and soul come together to relate to God and to our world as a holistic person. So sometimes um, we talk to people who are really addicted to pornography or they're looking at people only as sex objects. So I think the first step forward is to start viewing people primarily as agents of worship and, and to see them in a whole, wholly different way. 
Um, and, and then as you think of yourself and d the different struggles you have, um, if, if you're thinking of yourself in terms of, man, I, I'm just like my body just wants this and it's not me that's want, wants it. Well, it's, you're a whole you and um, you need to reconceive of yourself so that you can operate in this world in a different way as God made you. So this is really, really important. And it helps us in particular when we're talking about all of life worship, but it also helps us when we're talking about corporate worship. And that's the direction I want us to head now. But before we can get there, we need to talk about knowledge and communication and the body. Um, this, this is something that I think is sometimes overlooked and would be helpful for us. So it's, it's, It'll sound like a digression because I'm about to talk about knowledge and communication, but we're going to bring it back to embodied knowledge and communication. Knowledge of God has always been considered an important element of worship. In fact, from the very beginning, God says that you must know me so that I can dwell with you. And there's this connection between knowledge and God's presence and our worship that flows throughout the, the Bible. And we can't trace that whole thing here, but knowing God continues to find expression through the reading of his word, the, the work of his spirit, and these sorts of things. And in our corporate gathering, the way that we emphasize knowledge is primarily through preaching and teaching, right? And so we approach it almost, almost in an unbalanced way from an intellectual fact-giving perspective. Um, so, so we're going to impart knowledge and um, it's going to hit your brains, and then it's going to move from the inside out. Well, knowledge works two ways. Knowledge works from the inside out, where, where you think about something, and then it, it transforms the way that you live. But knowledge also works itself from the outside in, such that you know things through your bodies. But, but generally, we talk about knowing from the inside out. And if we take that too far, we can start to look at people as if they're just brains on sticks and you give them knowledge and then now they're programmed to go do something. Well, there, there's something right about that is we need to understand and grasp something intellectually and we know in that way and, and then we do something and we express that knowledge physically. Um, but in that physical expression of knowledge, there's sort of a reinforcement of that knowledge. And the expression of knowledge often happens in symbolic ways. So the example that I want to give you is, is this one that might seem a little bit dated. But imagine that there's a street urchin, you know, sitti sitting on the corner of a street, and this guy walks by who, who by all appearances is a peasant, but the street urchin looks up and sees his face and recognizes this is the prince. So, so there's, a, there's an inside-out knowledge going on here. Well, the outside expression or response to this knowledge is, I've got to kneel before this guy and say something like, hail the prince. Okay, so, so the inside knowledge works itself out in expression, but that kneeling also um, provides a kind of knowledge that's not known without the physical expression. Because in the act of kneeling, there's a physical submission and reverence that's given to this prince. And so the knowledge that this guy is prince goes deeper as, as you kneel before the prince and you know who you are in relationship to the prince and how that prince ought to be uh, related to. But then your act of kneeling then goes on to communicate knowledge, right? Everyone around says, why is this guy kneeling to the peasant? Oh, he's the prince. 
and, and everyone else kneels too. So um, if you watch Prince and the Popper or something like that, you, c you can imagine the situation. But the, what I'm trying to say is that generally we start with inside knowledge and it works itself out in physical expression. And that physical expression reinforces the knowledge that we have and then it creates the reality appropriate to the knowledge. Um, so when we talk about God and knowing God, there are appropriate responses that work itself out from the knowledge, you know, bowing down before him, think of Abraham or something like that, and that reinforces the knowledge and it creates a reality appropriate to that knowledge, and then it communicates that the, the regal nature of that individual to all who are watching. Does this make sense? So, so even knowledge that works from the inside out usually involves a, an embodied physical expression. Um, but this also happens from the outside in, okay? Well, oh, one, one more example. Ben gave this example to me unintentionally, I think, while we were talking, and he was talking about his kids sometimes walking up and, and raising their hands to be picked up. Well, well Ben knows something, and, and he responds by picking up his kid, and it, it um, acknowledges the knowledge. It creates a situation appropriate to that knowledge, and it communicates something to that child. I love you. You're secure. You're safe with me. So, so we, we do this all the time without thinking about it. I just want us to slow down and think about it a little bit more. Um, but we, we learn from the outside in as well. Um, so we, whether we would admit it or not, one of the reasons we can't admit it easily is that a lot of this happens under the hood, so to speak. We just don't realize it's happening. But we navigate this world, um, I don't want to say primarily, but to a great extent through our bodies. Um, so we rely on our bodies to tell us things, to give us knowledge. Um, so when you're reaching out and you feel the heat on, on the you know, pot, you instinctively pull back. You've known something that you only could have learned through your body, um, outside of taking a thermometer and sticking it in and, and reading the temperature. So we learn through our bodies in that way. We learn through our bodies in many other ways as well, particularly through the postures that our bodies take on. And, and that, I think, is where it starts to connect to corporate worship more um, closely. But as I mentioned already, we communicate through our bodies as well. And don't look. I, I scrolled too far. But I guess it's on your page as well. We, we communicate, we recognize that we need bodies to communicate fully and truly. And there are different percentages that are assigned to nonverbal communication, but we recognize that the embodied nature of communication is really important. And we might you know, suggest that in our technological age, the embodied nature of communication doesn't really matter at all anymore. But I want to suggest it does, and I want to point to these things as evidence that even the, the tech giants are thinking embodiment matters and we're disconnecting people from embodied communication but we need to give them a little taste of it because otherwise that communication is dead it, do it doesn't have the same kind of life so i can make i think it's called a memoji um i i can make a guy on my phone that looks relatively like me and there are a ton of expressions that that guy can make and I can just send that expression to somebody and they get a little shadowy hologram-like taste of me being there. And in fact, with my phone, I can, I, this guy, I can pull him up and I can record me saying something and his mouth will move when my mouth moves and his eyes will squint when mine does and he'll smile when I do. I don't know how it happens, but he can do that. And then I can send that to somebody and they can hear my voice 
and they can see a fair resemblance of my expressions while I'm talking to them. Well, I think this reinforces that just a basic study of humanity shows that bodily communication is really, really important. Um, in, in the way that we can change emojis to have our own skin color and these sorts of things, I think show that there's something meaningful and important that, can, that can't be separated. So we can't say my immaterial part is going to communicate with everyone else's immaterial parts from across the globe. We're, we're trying to say, I want my body to communicate as well. But then second, I think in this wake of COVID-19, particularly during shutdowns and um, especially with relatives who are stuck in nursing homes or hugs can't happen and these sort of things, bodily expression creates realities that can't be created in any other way. You, your hug on, of somebody is loving on them in a way that saying, I love you, just can never do. And so we need to bring these things together. But, but so when you give that embrace and you say, I love you so much, and you give a hug, those things coming together, this immaterial and material, this outside in and inside out happening all at once, that I think creates the most intimate knowledge. And um, so we, we need to say, if this is true for the rest of life, why would we disconnect this from our worship and from, from our communication with the one with whom we say we have the most intimate relationship ever? Why, why would we say God does not deserve my bodily expression in worship? Um, I skipped around here, and I, I think I've skipped something I wanted to talk about, and, and that is... Uh, that's, that's to come, okay? We'll, we'll get there. Let's move to corporate worship. Um, I want to just, again, reemphasize that this bodily expression in corporate worship has been marginalized, I think, for a variety of reasons. And there's this guy who suggests that there are three reasons. One is a misunderstanding of the scripture. So sometimes there are texts like John 4, 24, where Jesus says, the day is coming and now is where you'll worship me in spirit and in truth. And there's this misconception that that means that bodily expression in worship is being done away with. Well, that's, that's not what's going on there. Jesus is adjudicating between this debate between you know, Jews and Samaritans about where the cultic site should be. Where should the location of worship be? Should it be in Jerusalem or Samaria, Mount, Mount Gerizim? Well, Jesus is saying, no, I, I'm making you sacred people and you're going to worship everywhere at all times and it doesn't matter where you're going to be. Um, but then second, you know, along that text, um, it's, a, it's hard to say if this word spirit is referencing the Holy Spirit or the human spirit. Our Christian standard Bible takes it as Holy Spirit. And the idea there is that um, the Holy Spirit is going to be the animating force of your worship. That doesn't mean that there's no bodily expression in worship. Um, but then second, I think some evangelicals, uh, Baptists in particular maybe, overreact to Roman Catholic abuses of physical expression in worship. And, and so then they say, we're not going to express ourselves at all physically in worship. Um, and so whether that physical expression takes form of, you know, relics or pictures or icons or, you know, a lot, a lot of other gestures or these sorts of things, I, I don't know that it's all totally an abuse of physical expression, but sometimes there's a reaction to it as if now all physical expression is wrong. 
And then within conservative churches, I think conservatives overreact to the seeker-sensitive style churches of, of yesteryear where um, you know, everything was about being emotional and expressing yourself physically. And so the, the world I grew up in, it was like, man, if you raise your hands in a service, you're, you're probably a, a theological liberal. Well, I, I don't think that's the case. And as we'll see in, in the Bible, that's not the case. And there weren't, they weren't theologically liberal. Um, third, think in our Western culture, there's this uh, devaluing of gestures that communicate humility. Um, so kneeling, lying prostrate, these sort of things, these are just not cool in our culture because life is all about me and I'm awesome. And so I should never kneel or bow before anybody. Well, that's problematic. Um, the, so that's the bad part about our Western culture. The good part is that other physical expressions, I think, are just normal. Um, and so like clapping, embracing, these sorts of things, th these are welcomed and it's not odd. So I think we need to lean into that good part of our culture and then react a little bit against the negative part of our culture. Uh, but in addition to these reasons, I think things like personality type, self-awareness, and lack of instruction play into this marginalization of bodily expression. So a more introverted person like myself would tend to be self-conscious when expressing myself physically. And so I tend to just stand with the hands in the pocket and try not to be seen. Well, a more extroverted person perhaps may be like, I don't care if people see me. I'm being expressive and I'm type A and I'm uh, this is who I am. And, and we start to connect physical expression to being genuine or disingenuous so that the introverted person says it would be unauthentic of me to be physically expressive. And, and the expressive person says it would be inauthentic of me to withhold this. And so we start to think about physical expression only in terms of expression, not in terms of formation. And so we start to say, I'll express myself physically only in response to what my immaterial inside part feels like. Well, I want to suggest if it's true that we learn both from the inside out and the outside in, we're going to find ourselves doing things physically that we don't feel like doing, and it's going to form us to be what we should be thinking and feeling and doing. And this is partly biblical. This is partly psychological interest in the way that God's made our bodies. Uh, so I've had an interest in this in a long time. I read this book called The Power of Habit when I was in college and was like, I can use my brain to be more godly. Like I, I can develop habits that enforce, reinforce what I know I should be doing, even if I don't feel like it. And some of those things are sillies, but they work. So I, I uh, was always sort of like a, a down and outer kind of like kind of like glum. And uh, my, I was called downer sometimes because <laughs> of my last name um, and, and my attitude often. And I realized after reading this book that if I stuck a pencil in my mouth, I would be happier. Like there was something chemically that would go on in my brain when my mouth was forced into a, sp a smile by sticking a pen in my mouth. And so I started doing that whenever I was like, I'm, I'm glum today. I, I would stick a pen in my mouth and there was something that would happen where, where God made our bodies in our way that we, we are changed from the outside in and from the inside out. And when we start to apply that to Christianity, it's not legalism or inauthentic to have our bodies do things to change us on the inside. That's an embracing of who God made us to be. So I want to suggest that there are times where you don't feel like kneeling before the Lord. 
you don't feel like raising your hands in worship or need to God. You, d- you don't feel what, you, what, the, what God would have you feel. Well, don't think, well, it would be inauthentic for me to express these things. Allow that physical expression to carry you along until you're in, in proper, responding appropriately to the knowledge and the realities that, that you are being exposed to. Okay, um, hold on to that. Tim just said amen, and uh, sorry to, I'm not embarrassing you because you're expressive and, and <laughs> that sort of thing, um, but, but hold on to that because we, we find ourselves as part of a, a low church tradition, that is, we don't have for a ton of formal liturgy, and so a lot of expression in physical posturing is voluntary, voluntaristic. Hold, hold on to that. But the range of bodily expression and formation in the Bible is really, really broad. Um, there are physical postures like wa- prostration, lying, sitting, standing. There are actions performed with hands, clapping and raising of hands and stretching the hands out. Actions performed with the feet, marching and dancing and jumping that all fit into acts of corporate worship throughout the Bible. And if you look at, I think, the average American church, you're not going to find very many of these things. And, and I wonder what we, what we don't know because we aren't expressing ourselves physically and we're not being formed physically because there are certain things we can only know by taking that action. And so I'm, I'm not suggesting today that you start uh, dancing on the chairs or marching around the, the auditorium, but I am suggesting that uh, the Bible gives us a wide range of physical expressions and formations that we should perhaps start to engage with more thoughtfully. So let's talk about this at Resurrection Church. Um, every, every church has a liturgy that is a format of what happens, a shaping of things, and that liturgy includes things in the order of service. It includes things in the way that the building has been built and that the seats are set up. Um, an interesting thing to do is to look at the shapes of church auditoriums over the centuries and see what, what the effects of that are. Well, in our day, most of us, were, it's this amphitheater seating, and that says something. And I, I don't like what it says. It's kind of what we're stuck with, even as we design our own building. But liturgy is what we're going to talk about this more next week. But in higher churches, there, there's more formal liturgy that tells you just about everything that you need to do. It tells you when to say amen and hallelujah and when to stand and when to kneel. And, and there are like kneelers that are attached to pews or chairs so that you can kneel in a service. Um, it, t- it tells you when to say thanks be to God. It tells you when to raise your hands and in what postures. And in the high church tradition, they really lean into the formative aspect of bodily, bodily posture. So you, you don't, I mean, you'll see sometimes, I, I visited a church not too long ago, and there were a, a couple of occasions in like a singing time where people spontaneously were raising their hands or these other things, but, but there were times that the service liturgy said, raise your hands, um, or the congregation responds, amen. Another reading, congregation, hallelujah, whatever. Well, well, there's a really formative aspect of that, and I, th- I think that our lower church tradition needs to learn from that because we need to get out of this autonomous individualism that says, I'm going to just do whatever I want, and no one's going to tell me what I should do in anything. Well, there's a formative aspect that we need. We, we have a really soft, light, like uh, really 
uh, small version of that where we have you stand and sit at certain times where we have this twice in a service where there's a scripted response you have to give. Well, that's not legalism or anything like that. It's learning from the outside in, and it's, it's taking shape. It's a formative aspect of expression. Um, but in our, our lower free church traditions, this is more autonomous and uh, volunteeristic and, you know, self-expressive. And, and I think some high church traditions can, can learn from that, too. I don't think that that's bad. Um, in fact, I think that's good. I think because of the way that our church is in our low church tradition, it just puts more responsibility on you as members to think, I, I have to take charge of the formative aspect of my bodily expression. I can't rely on, on the pastors to say, um, stand and stretch out your arms as we appeal for the Lord's mercy. Well, there are texts in Scripture where appeals for the Lord's mercy are always accompanied with outstretched arms. And so there's something right about that. Even if we don't feel like we need God's mercy, we're like the little kids saying, pick me up, I need, I need you, I'm, I'm empty. And so because of the tradition that we're in, which I prefer, I, I think you need to, as members in congregants, say, I'm going to take charge of this a little bit more and I'm not going to uh, shun bodily expression, and I'm not going to use bodily expression purely in an expressive way, but also in a formative way when, when I don't feel like it or, or I don't want it. So we don't need to feel humble to kneel in prayer. We don't need to feel, you know, crazy to lift hands straight up in the air and praise. We don't need to feel needy to stretch out our arms. Instead, I think we need to leverage some of this. And um, th this may feel awkward at first if you've never done this, and that's okay. Um, embrace the, the awkwardness. That's how you get through everything that's awkward. You just embrace it and talk yourself through it and say, this is awkward. And it reminds me that I'm awkward, which reminds me I'm not perfect and I'm weird and needy. And, and oh, that's why I have my hands stretched out because I'm needy. Okay, so, so I think that's, that's what we need to do. So a few things that we'll pick up in more depth next week, but I'm not trying to say everybody needs to express or be formed physically in, in the same way at all times or something like that. But I do want us to think about this a little bit more. So we'll pick up with these uh, three fairly, or four fairly, five fairly significant considerations on um, body formation and expression next week.